Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dr. Paul Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a recognized educator and clinician with three decades of clinical experience in integrative and naturopathic medicine with a focus on complex infectious, chronic, and oncologic illnesses. He is a co-author of the Hay House book, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies, with Dr. Mark Stangler, as well as a co-author with Jack Canfield, in the anthology, Success Breakthroughs, and the Lioncrest publishing book, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. Dr. A is a frequent CME speaker and writer and has extended his educational outreach by creating an online CE website, consultdra.com, and advanced applications in medical practice conferences. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. A, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Dr. A. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I am really looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you. Well, first, I just would love to hear what led you to do work in integrative oncology. Good place to start. So the process was really nothing that I was looking for originally when I went into practice, which was a long time ago, uh, many, many decades ago. And what happened really, the short version is because I had this interesting mix of kind of a standard family practice, uh, seeing all ages and, you know, anybody for their primary care, et cetera. And also I was doing a lot of integrative medicine things, naturopathic medical things, et cetera. And back in those days, the number one, they weren't very well accepted. Number two, um, there were just not that many of us doing that sort of thing. So what started to happen organically, rather than me going and looking for people with cancer was uh, people, families started to find out that I did integrative things and, uh, and what we might back then call alternative things. And then they started to bring their family members who had cancer and say, well, could you do this? Could you help with this, et cetera? And um, so while I 
in the setting of a family practice, which is a very general practice, you know, you see people who have cancer, obviously, and things like that. But then I started to more in earnest, uh, start to treat them either for, you know, side effects of their cancer therapy, or back then we used to get a lot of people where the very last thing the oncologist would say is we, we have nothing else we can do for you. If you want to explore other options, go ahead and do it. Of course, it was very late in, in the game for, for those patients. So the early days were, were a lot of that sort of thing. So that then turned into, you know, you never know how life is going to turn out. So um, what happened was I started to, to really uh, collect a larger and larger group of people who had cancer and other pretty, you know, advanced chronic illnesses. And my practice went in a very short couple of years from a general family practice uh, to a specialty practice in uh, integrative and naturopathic oncology and and uh, other integrative medicine. Yeah. And now there's just so much cancer. And, mm-hmm. you know, why do you think there is so much cancer now? I think there's multiple reasons. And aside from maybe some academic institutions where I've made this statement, I, I've never had anyone not agree with it because it just seems logical. And that is that, you know, in the last, especially say 75 years, you go a hundred if you want to. Uh, but if you look at like the last 50 years, cancer rates have just increased amazingly uh, high and in areas where there didn't used to be a lot, such as pediatric, you know, childhood cancers, et cetera, it's, you know, even more aggressive seemingly. And then the other thing is, you know, possibly certain cancers, this, this is hard to get data on until you, you know, go many years, but some cancers that might've been a little easier to treat in the past seem to be harder to treat now for, for a number of reasons, probably. So I think if you look at, well, what has changed with humanity in the last 50 to 100 years, it's certainly not us or our biology, pretty much. I mean, we haven't really changed or evolved or whatever. You look at that, you know, a whole lot in 100 years. But what's the world done? Well, in the last 100 years, we've added, you know, tens and tens of thousands of chemicals that didn't used to exist. And for many of those last, say, 50 years, they were highly unregulated in North America. Now they're regulated more, but in the rest of the world, they really aren't. And so you get a lot of epigenetic triggering from a lot of different sources. So epigenetics is your genes are a code, like a recipe. Epigenetics is literally like how you put the recipe together, what turns on or off the genes, et cetera. And so epigenetics are probably more important than your genes really. And if we assault our body with things like toxins and chronic stress and uh, potentially chronic infections and all these other things, at a certain point, the bucket overflows and the genes that were being quiet that might've protected you from cancer are not quiet anymore, you know, and they're more active and aggressive. And I think that there's good, at least, somewhat causal evidence of this, certainly correlative evidence in, uh, if you look at what are uh, often called hotspots for certain types of cancer uh, and the the government in the U.S. and I'm sure in Canada also keeps track of things like that. 
And for pediatric cancers, there's clusters all around the U.S., and they all relate to some sort of environmental toxicity or you know some other thing like that. So, I think it's it's dangerous to say it's one thing, but I think it's just our bodies are not set up to live in the environment that we live in today for all these different reasons, uh, and and be as resilient to cancer as we were 50 or 100 years ago. So, what are some of the things? that you feel strongly about that, that can help us lessen our, our toxic burden and stay healthier and avoid, avoid cancer if we can. Certainly. Um, I think that, you know, it, it, it's a lot better than it was 10 and certainly 20 or 30 years ago, as far as public awareness of this sort of thing. I think it's much more common now that the average person at least has a sense that, you know, toxic things are not good for us and and they're very common in our environment. Whereas the previous sort of messaging, I think, especially from the government and regulatory people was, well, that, you know, they're probably not that bad for you, those chemicals. So when you're dealing with uh, environmental exposures, and that could be chemicals, uh, metals, it could be environmental uh, toxic things such as mold toxins. It can be electromagnetic you know, toxins. It doesn't matter. The order that we usually try and think of with patients first is what can we do to decrease our exposure? Um, and we don't live, there is no place on earth that has no toxic influence anymore. So we don't live in a non-toxic world. So we don't get the option of saying, well, I'll just move somewhere else. That's you know, there, there may be limited use of that. Um, but what we can do is look at, well, what are the ways into the body for toxic things? So food and drink and, and the air where we breathe and interact with are the three biggest areas where we have con- some control over toxicity. Uh, the air is maybe a little more difficult because you, you can only filter it so much, et cetera. But um, food and drink is pretty huge. And there's what I see, especially with cancer, is there's sort of two trajectories of epigenetic toxicity or epigenetic uh, negativity, you know, turning on the wrong genes or not keeping quiet the, the right genes. And that is that our food and drink, et cetera, that we take in is a huge vector for a lot of toxic material that either the plants or animals were treated with or the water has in it, or, you know, et cetera. The other side, which is aggravated by toxicity, is sort of a metabolic toxicity, which is the food and drink choices we make can throw off uh, our metabolism in a direction where we're more inflammatory with or without the chemicals. So um, when I when I write about this or speak about it, especially to, well, whether it's doctors or, or patient groups, it's really starting there with what we can control because, you know, the, there's, there's a big good and a big bad world out there and there's a lot of stuff we can control and, you know, we got to deal with what we can. So I usually try and have people, especially on, you know, let's say you're what we call primary prevention where you don't have cancer or you don't know that you have cancer. It's very early. What you eat and drink, how you move your body, stuff like that, you've got control over. And it's probably the biggest tool you have for, you know, minimizing exposure. Sometimes that's easier. You know, it could be uh, use, you know, getting real clean sources of water or getting good water filtration for your 
eating and drinking, you know, sometimes it's doing some assessment to see, you know, what you are being exposed to and being careful about that. It can impact the cost of what you eat and drink, because if you're trying to get, say, organic food, that can be more expensive, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot of decisions and sometimes trade-offs. But I really think from the point of view of genotoxicity, which is, it's not that genetics are the reason for cancer totally, but it's this collage of metabolism and toxic influences and genetics and other things. The stuff we can try and avoid is, is probably the biggest tool that we have. And then paired with that, if you look at, well, our internal environment, let, let's say I've limited my exposure as much as I can to toxicity, the relative to eating in a way to keep our metabolism kind of level and non-inflammatory is also moving our body uh, enough so that we circulate our blood and our big muscles get some work, et cetera. That kind of keeps us in that anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory place. And so I, th I think the stuff we have, we have mostly control over, uh, unless you're not feeding yourself or, you know, you have no control over what you're eating or drinking, um, are probably the biggest things that we, we probably all ought to be focusing on. And of course, they're going to help other diseases too, <laughs> you know. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned water. I mean, can you give us some examples of, of where to get good clean water or a filtration system? Yeah. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot better options now than there used to be with respect to water. What I usually recommend to people is it depends a bit on their household size and, you know, the volume of water they're using for cooking and drinking. So for example, I have colleagues, um, who live alone, or maybe that's them and one other person and putting in, you know, a filtration system just seems, you know, like quite a lot. And so they'll go and they'll get pre-deionized filtered water that's got as much of the junk out of it as possible. And they'll buy, you know, a few gallons a week. And that's plenty for one person, say, to cook with and drink. Because you do, you don't want to cook with with water, with toxins, as well as you don't want to drink it. Whereas if you get to, you know, we have, my wife and I, our children are grown, but most of them live near us and we have a lot of grandchildren. So we're always feeding a number of people here. And so, you know, we, we use a filtration system. Now I can, I can speak easily to the filtration that I use like in my clinic or at home, uh, but that's doesn't mean it's the only, there's a lot of good filtration systems out there. The thing that I would look for, though, and I'm, I'm not sponsored by any company either, but the thing that I would look for is if a filtration system removes the metal arsenic, that's one of the hardest metals to remove through regular filtration. So if you have a filtration system that's rated for arsenic, which in the U.S., the military brought this up as a problem, has been a problem for them and their water. So you can find out if it's rated for arsenic. But then the other things are like the PFOS, the forever chemicals that are uh, incidental to a lot of the chemical toxicity that's in our groundwater. So if you can get a good chemical rating and a, and a metal rating for arsenic, it will pretty much grab the other metals. It'll grab probably most of the forever chemicals. And those are probably your biggest things you don't want in your water. So again, if it's just you, uh, it's probably easier just to buy some 
deionized water every week. If it's, you know, if you have a lot of water you're using for eating and drinking, a filtration system would be good. But I, that's the two things I have people look for is uh, things that would get the forever chemicals, the PFOS family, and then uh, metal rating up through arsenic, which is one of the best metal ratings. And there's countertop models that people use that are very good. There's inline ones for you know, a little more high volume, like at our clinic, um, we have them uh, inline. So there's, there's no water that goes into anything that doesn't have filtration. It just kind of depends on what your target is. Great, that's really helpful. You know, I'd love you to go into PFOS a little bit, just because I think a lot of people don't know what that is. And- where it is. Yeah. You know, the world of environmental uh, toxicity or environmental medicine is, it's fairly new. It's, it's a phenomenon of the last 30 or 40 years. So I've been around for most of it. And what we've known all along, although the testing has always lagged behind, you know, our knowledge of dangerous chemicals is that the more Certainly metals we know are, you know, lead's bad for you, et cetera. But there's a lot of chemicals out there in the world that are not only hard for your body to get rid of, but they also have negative effects on your detoxification pathways and a whole bunch in your immune system, et cetera. So the PF family, it's like PFOS and a bunch of other PFs, a very long word. Uh, that I always trip over and I try and say it. So just look up forever chemicals and you'll find about that. I have a great YouTube on it if you guys want it. Um, But they basically are here because they were part of industrial uh, chemical development and use. Then they get into the groundwater and then they're just sort of naturally percolating through what people are eating and drinking. Because if if you have um, plants that are watered with that water, you know, they'll concentrate that sometimes. If you have animals drinking the water or eating the plants, they concentrate it. And then whatever you eat, you know, even if you're drinking totally pure water. Well, the reason they call them forever chemicals is that they literally don't, they just don't break down They're You know, they, they can be in a aquifer or something like that. And, unlike other chemicals that maybe there's uh, microbial breakdown or other stuff, this, these don't, those don't fall out of those rules. So they're around longer. Then when they get into us, they tax our system to try and get rid of them, which is very hard to do. And they're in taxing your system. They can tax, they it's sort of like you don't need one more problem to take away your body's ability to detoxify naturally. And these things get in the way. And so whatever not detoxifying as quick as you might want to does for you negatively will often happen over time. And so for some people, that's uh, things, you know, like abnormal cell growth or inflammatory activity, it can be you just don't get rid of other toxins that then create other problems for you. So these sort of things, you know, we think of uh, in the popular media, usually they're talking about water supply, which is critical, which is why we're you know, all about clean water. But you got to remember that your plants and your animals get water too, you know, and so you have to be careful about those things. So the forever chemicals are probably, they're just unique in, in the way that they don't break down like a lot of other chemicals, which do. 
but how negative they are for you is kind of the same as a lot of other chemicals that you might be exposed to as well. Okay. So, I mean, are those in nonstick pans and carpet? Yeah, they tended to originally come from industrial applications that all usually had some interaction with humans uh, and some direct things like uh, the original, you know, Teflon style nonstick pans and things of that nature, which we're eating off of. Uh, But also most of the, you know, so-called man-made stuff that we use. So, you know, carpets that are sent any synthetic fibers, et cetera, they're, you know, they're, they're around, they're there. The closer you are to them uh, and the closer they are to what you eat or drink, the more you're going to get in you. And and like with carpet, a lot of times there's a couple of problems. You you brought up carpet, so I'll talk about that. Um, you, You can have the forever chemicals as part of the manufacture potentially of a synthetic fiber and then that's sort of around, uh, but then you also have the synthetic fiber that's uh, off-gassing other chemicals. So it's, you know, there's a lot of things with synthetics that, you know, it, it's it's about your exposure. Less less is better, really. And, then, you know, I've had people say, well, as soon as you go out and drive your car around, you're getting exposed to all sorts, which is true. But it's like you don't have to go out of your way to find more reasons to be exposed <laughs> to these chemicals uh, because we can't get away from them. But um, but yeah, that's one reason why, you know, the I guess the original like nonstick cookware, which, of course, was used for half a century, you know, before anyone said, well, this is probably not a good idea. That's such a direct way into people, you know, and it's not like that was a rare thing for people using their kitchen. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and so I, I think that that sped it up. I think now that it's in the water supplies, that speeds it up. You know, it's it's, it's not going to go away. So we just have to be vigilant. Yeah, right. And I mean, are there ways to detoxify those kind of chemicals? And what are the best ways? Yeah, it's um, generally speaking, and each. Each type of chemical, your body has different ways of processing if it can. Your body does have sort of two responses to chemicals or metals that it's not supposed to have in it. Uh, and those two responses are either to try and push it out through an eliminatory pathway or organ or to say, well, we can't get enough out that way, so we're going to essentially hide the chemical somewhere. And what happens is if your exposure is fairly low to most toxins, your body through your urine and your sweat and uh, your feces, et cetera, will try and get rid of them as best it can. When the exposure ratchets up, your body only has so many pathways to get rid of this junk. So then it will, you know, say metabolically speaking, uh, well, we can't get rid of this. So we're going to hide it in the liver cells or we're going to hide it in the bones or we're going to, you know, it puts it in solid organs. And that becomes a big problem as a cumulative exposure over time. So certainly, you know, you have these acute exposure problems like with pediatric cancers where before the baby is born, mom is exposed, fetus is exposed, baby is born with epigenetics turned on by the toxicity. And then that probably leads to some of the pediatric cancers. But then there's a lot of adults where they could be being exposed for 20, 30, 40, 
50, 60 years before it turns those same things on. So what you need to do then is, uh, which is why we always start with lower your exposure as much as you can. And then if you get someone, uh, you know, who's six or so decades around like me, uh, there's, there's most of those decades. I didn't, I wasn't thinking a lot about these things, or I didn't even know these things were, you know, building up. So you've got more to work on. Uh, so if you stop exposure and then you think, well, your body is made with a really nice three-phase detox system. So the first phase is for particular types of chemicals that are more fat-soluble, whether your body makes them or whether they come from outside. Second phase is for phase one moving out plus some other chemistry that doesn't go through phase one. Phase two is where like glutathione and some of the more you know famous detox things work. And then phase three is literally, well, your body's bound this stuff up as best it can. Can we get it out through sweating? Can we get it out through your urine and or through your bile into your GI tract and, you know, out through the feces? So those are the three big ways out of your body. Um, what we do with a lot of folks where there's a lot of chemical toxicity backup is we'll support those detox pathways and then we try to get them to have all three of those areas as actively removing as possible. Uh, so sweating is, you know, I mean, sweating is as old as time in humans, you know, in medicine. Uh, it turns out it's probably very good for us, uh, you know. Right, no one likes it, but it's good for us. <laughs> right. And and this is also why, you know, people tell you drink enough water. Well, part of that is obviously is hydrating. But the other part is, if you're not hydrated enough and your body's getting ready to get rid of something through the urine, uh, it may or may not be able to, because there's not enough fluid moving out of you. And kind of the same with, uh, with the digestive tract, we have this tricky thing with detox where the liver will take toxins, put them into the bile, which we use, normally bile is there to help us digest fats and help our bowels move and stuff. But our body uh, is very careful with bile and it, uh, it recycles it. So about 98% of bile goes back to your liver. The reason that that's not good if you're toxic is you just reabsorb the toxins. And so this is where things like fiber in your diet becomes very important because fiber holds on to the bile. Uh, sometimes your healthcare provider may use a, a binder. So it might be extra fiber or an even more potent uh, binding substance that you eat and it kind of goes through and sponges this stuff out. But that's a big area where we see a lot of like the liver goes through all this trouble to get rid of this stuff. And if it can't get through the sweat or the urine in the GI tract, it's great if it gets out there. But if you don't have enough you know, fiber and things to bind it and keep it going out, it just goes right back into your bloodstream which is one reason people, when they start to do a detox, quote unquote, if they're not attentive to those three ways out, they'll feel sick. It's because they're moving it around and they recycle a lot, unfortunately. So, so really, you know, taking advantage of what your body does naturally is the first step. I mean, there's certain things where there's specific detoxification, external things that can be done like metals. If you really have trouble with uh, environmental exposure to metals, they you can go to a healthcare provider and be prescribed a, a protocol that includes uh, chelating medications that actually hold the metal till it leaves your body. With chemicals, it's not that easy because they're not as simple as a metal 
chemically. Uh, so that's when we use a lot of support of the liver, a lot of digestive binders, a lot of hydration, a lot of sweating, you know, just to try and get the body to move as much out as it can. And I always do tell people like there's, we all should be attentive to our basics, you know, what we eat and drink and the air and all that. And we should all be trying to have our body work as well as it can. So we're getting enough hydration. We're sweating periodically, at least um, we're eating high fiber foods and good nutrients and all that. But if you get to the point where you're real, you know, maybe you find a lot of toxicity or it's really affecting your health. You want to work with a healthcare provider that does this environmental medicine approach because there's a lot to manage there. If you, if you've had a lifetime of exposure, you can get real sick by doing an inappropriate detox (laughs) at the wrong time. That's such a good point. Yeah. Just, you know, if you, if you've had a bad experience doing a detox, quote unquote, usually it's not that detox is bad for it's just maybe you need a little more orchestration from potentially an outside party to help out. And what is the best way to find a practitioner that does that? Again, there's at least a a few more people around the world doing this and I can certainly share some links, some find a provider links uh, that you can put in your show notes, et cetera, if you do that. But there are some medical training groups that train all types of practitioners. And usually I'll send people to those. They usually have a find a practitioner service and there's a number of different ones because the U.S. especially, but really everywhere in the world, it can be kind of spotty in some parts of the world. You really need a way to find that practitioner. Now, if you're doing just a search on your own in your own town, because you do usually want someone near you, look for the term uh, or the words environmental medicine. And this is a good distinction. If you go out and someone tried to poison you and you went to the hospital, you would see a toxicologist and their specialty is really poisoning levels of chemicals and metals and things. Environmental medicine is more what we're talking about where, because toxicologists are not so much going to care about long-term exposure or these other things. Environmental medicine trained physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners, et cetera, they have the tools and the training to, to help you use your body to its maximum advantage to get rid of stuff. Uh, so we can we can share some referral sources, but if you look at for environmental medicine or uh, detoxification and environmental medicine, those are probably the best ways to find it locally. <laughs> okay, that's so helpful. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarlfeldcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. 
Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. You know, I'd love you to go over some of the complementary therapies you use. You know, I know a lot of people that are going through cancer treatment are afraid to use some of these complementary therapies because their oncologists are saying, no, don't, don't do anything else. So, you know, I'd love to hear about some of these and what you say, like, for example, high dose vitamin C, is that safe to do with chemotherapy or is there a time it's not safe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question, and that's sort of been forever the conundrum in oncology, at least for for my colleagues who are sort of straight medical oncologists or radiation oncologists. Is well, is you know, is any of the stuff you do safe, or will it will it hurt our chemo or whatever? And as literally as recently as yesterday, because I do a lot of mentoring with other uh, healthcare providers. I got a message from a doctor who was going to implement some of the things we're about to talk about with somebody who was on a targeted therapy for their cancer. Uh, so just to make it real simple, there's sort of the standard old, old line anti-cell chemotherapies like the platinum drugs and the taxanes and stuff like that. And then there's the newer biological therapies that are quote unquote targeted to a particular part of your cancer process. So there's sort of two different ways that cancer therapies work there. Targeted therapies um, are nice because they're usually the side effects are not as big and they're targeting less, you know, it's not killing the whole cell and your cells and everything. But literally this oncologist on, on the other side was told the patient, well, you, you can't take any nutrient supplements. You can't do this. You can't do that because they'll all make this particular target therapy not work. And so I sent this doctor um, about four or five papers that say exactly, the, and these are not papers from people like me. These are from the people who develop these targeted therapies and people who use them all the time where they said, look, these things will work better if the person is nutritionally sufficient and if they have enough of this and that and the other thing. And so it's just, it's like the, there is a knee jerk reaction that comes from the days prior where we really didn't have a lot of hard science to say, this is safe or this isn't or whatever. Because remember, this hasn't been going on that long. It's within, you know, my practice lifetime, basically. And so what happens then is the culture of oncology, if you're a medical oncologist or radiation oncologist, the culture, unless you're very interested in these sort of integrated things, is just to say, well, I know what my stuff does. So that could be chemo or radiation or target therapy. I have no idea what your stuff does. And so it must be bad. And that's really been the, the, the culture, you know, until recently. There's a lot more people practicing integrative oncology, but that doesn't change the majority, right? So one of the things now to go back, and we'll start with the, the most popular integrative therapy in, in my personal experience is the high-dose vitamin C <laughs> IVs. Uh, I've actually done human research with high-dose vitamin C IV in a National Institute of Health-funded trial 
we had five years with a human trial of integrative oncology. And my part was all, all the interventional things. So intravenous therapies and things like that. And early in that trial, this, this trial started, it's been a while ago. It's probably getting close to 20 years ago that the trial started. So it was five years then early on. One of the things that I had to do is collect research to share with our medical oncology colleagues who were also in the trial, obviously, to show that vitamin C and most chemotherapies it's been studied with are actually compatible, if not synergistic. And the reason for that was just simply this notion that, well, vitamin C seems like an antioxidant and my treatment's a pro-oxidant, so they can't go together. It's totally theoretical. And, and since then, there's been many other treatments where that, that theoretical problem's been proven wrong in actual research. So I actually wrote a companion guide with all of the research up to that time on different chemotherapies and vitamin C. And pretty much there's no chemotherapy that's been studied where it's truly a contraindication. There's a couple where you'd want to set, you wouldn't want to do them at the exact same time. Like if I give you a particular chemotherapy today, I might not want to give you vitamin C today, but really what we train physicians with giving vitamin C is look, it's, it's a lot to put through the patient. It, the kidneys have to work hard after you get the IV. So you, most of the time we don't do them the same day as the chemotherapy anyway. Right. So it's a little separation. So generally speaking, that is a very, um, it's a common misnomer. It's usually, like I say, a knee-jerk reaction that, well, you can't do this stuff because we're giving you chemo. And in most cases, that's exactly the opposite from what any of the science says. And you could even say that for a lot of the more common oral things that are done, such as uh, one of the most common, we say curcumin. There are tens of thousands of research papers on curcumin, many of them to do with cancer and many of those to do with cancer therapies. And curcumin uh, and uh, other plants like Boswellia, which is an Ayurvedic herb we use a lot with a lot of types of cancer and certain types of the ginger family. There's, there's a lot of them. They're either completely safe and helpful during chemo, or at the very least, they're not going to get in the way of you know your, your therapies. This is an area though, where the more of it you're going to do, the you want to work with somebody who this is an area of study for them. So they do integrative oncology or naturopathic oncology or something there so that they, they know when to give you what and all of that. So high dose vitamin C is interesting in that if we look at the, the history of it, people have been trying it since the seventies and it was uh, Linus Pauling, the Nobel laureate, and um, Ewan Cameron did a study in, I think, Scotland in the 70s, and it was positive. And then they redid the study the wrong way in the U.S. to prove it didn't work. And what they did is they didn't replicate what Pauling and Cameron did, but they gave a, a dose that would never help with cancer in that respect. And so then it was, oh, well, Mayo Clinic proved vitamin C doesn't work. So it's sort of, it's been this back and forth thing since the seventies. And the bottom line of it is it doesn't always like high dose does one group of things. We now know through a number of studies that have been done for quality of life, extending life, potentially decreasing cancer side effects. 
There are low dose strategies that we use sometimes in those settings. And so vitamin C is sort of a really good utility player, kind of like in a, a sporting team where somebody can do more than one position. Vitamin C is very much that way because your body uses it many different ways. And again, if, if you're going to do any intravenous therapy, that's you need someone who does who's trained to do that and knows, knows the ins and outs. There's a lot of oral therapies. If you look in Dr. Stengler in my book, so I'm on my second or third book about cancer, but the outside the box one where we talk about uh, treatments in our chapter, just on plant medicines, there's over 300 studies cited just, just in our you know little chapter, but it's not that little, but it's got a lot of plant medicines in there. There's a lot of research around plant medicines. Uh, the IV chapter, most of the uh, research is around vitamin C, but there's certainly a lot of other things that we do that way. I think going back to our discussion of toxicity, same exact logic. When I'm talking to a cancer patient, or now I, I get the opportunity to talk to medical students or you know, newer doctors, et cetera, many of whom have more open minds, some who have more close minds. But what I usually say is, because you know, one of the things people will say about integrative or naturopathic oncology as well it costs the patients a lot of money. Their insurance often doesn't pay for it. It's, you know, it, it sort of, uh, it has a lot of, you know, intrinsic problems, you know, barriers to access, right? Which is true. And so what I will often say in, in, in my more recent book, which is more about just you dealing with your cancer and your, you know, mind-body connection and all of that, what I put in there especially is if I look back over three decades of cancer patients and just think about what did the people who did better have in common versus those who things didn't go as well. In most cases, now there's some exceptions to this, but in most cases, globally speaking, the people who do better had three areas that they were attending to that are very core to human health. And then everything on top of it, all the cool therapies like IVs or uh, light therapy or herbs or nutrient things or whatever was on a better base is my theory. And those three areas really are kind of the same as what we talked about with toxicity. But for medical students to make it easy, I call it food, muscle, and brain. Those are the three foundational pillars. Food is everything about feeding your body, but also the timing of when you eat the quantity, the cleanliness of the food with toxins, how inflammatory the food is. You know, there's many things about feeding us that is beyond energy. Uh, so food is a huge thing and diet and eating, et cetera. Yeah. I was curious if there is a certain diet that you recommend. I know there's not one diet that's right for everyone, but if there's something that you that you do tell people. Um, and also I was curious about intermittent fasting. I know we could talk forever, but yeah. um, just I'm, that's such a big thing when it comes to cancer. And I feel like, again, people who are going through treatment are told eat, 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 and right. you have to gain weight. You have to right. gain weight. And they're worried about that. Yeah. Well, no, and feel free to interrupt anytime. Cause I, I can talk forever about this stuff and I'm sure we don't have forever. So um, <laughs> while we're on the food part though, uh, so what would be curious, no one, no one did this to no one thought ahead, but if you took every five years uh, on year one, five, 10, et cetera, through my career and asked me what I thought the best cancer diet was, it would be interesting to see the evolution of 
uh, what, what that is over time. Here is, and I, I was in the middle of filming, I've done a bunch of it, but I'm filming a, um, a resource uh, online video course for people who have cancer or families. And we, in the diet section, we got way into this. So the short version is with everything that we've learned in the last, let's say 50 years uh, around cancer and diet. And then if we go back, you know, a hundred years to like Otto Warburg and the origins of the metabolic theories of cancer and all that. And then if we look at with modern science, kind of how that works out. I personally believe that with a little guidance, people have the opportunity to probably eat in a few different ways that are all anti-cancer. Now, there are times, which again is a clinical decision where maybe your cancer is so aggressive, you have to do more of what I call a prescription diet, where it's maybe more restrictive or maybe you know something very special. But if you look at uh, and if you just look at the um, outcomes of people with cancer and different types of diets, you can literally find positive outcomes from many different uh, avenues of eating. What they all have in common is they tend to be low inflammation because inflammation drives cancer and cancer metastases. So, and that's inflammation is a lot of things, but low inflammation and they tend to enhance uh, this balance of we want more muscle metabolism and less fat metabolism. So one of the things that is in common with all of the diets that seem to work is a decrease in insulin uh, triggering, insulin sensitizing, that sort of thing. Because insulin's one thing that talks to a lot of other things and all of its messaging is very inflammatory. So we want enough to live, but we don't want too much. Average North American uh, probably has a very high insulinogenic diet. It just triggers too much insulin all the time. That's not good for cancer. So you can actually do those things. But what I came up with after trying to describe this to people for all these years was I actually made graphics for our clinic. And we kind of had two ends of a spectrum because here's what would happen. A patient comes in, they've always eaten a certain way. And let, let's say it's you know, it's not your standard American diet. They may be more of a Mediterranean style diet, or maybe, you know, I got people who really like a low carbohydrate approach, both of which can be very good in cancer if used correctly. Well, a lot of times if you try and say, well, the only thing we do at this clinic is low carb or keto approaches, or the only thing we do is med, you're going to lose a lot of patients and say, I can't eat that way, or my family doesn't eat or whatever, you know? And so what we found to make it so people actually could do it is we would train them that what you're putting in your mouth as far as your macros, so to speak, and all that is the last thing we worry about. The first thing is timing. So intermittent fasting was the base. I made a little triangle or a pyramid or whatever. The base of the pyramid was actually intermittent fasting because there's now human data that shows in breast cancer patients that they had, uh, they didn't even change their diet. They just stopped eating for 13 hours a day. And they had something like 33, 35% less cancer recurrence, you know, and there's just by doing that, it gives your body a break. You go into autophagy, all these good things. So we would work people. That was the base because almost everyone can do that. It's 
not that hard. Can you just explain, so, you know, what time you're finished eating maybe? So there are people who don't do well when, you know, they don't eat, et cetera. Um, and so with those folks, we just um, go slower into this. But basically what I would say to people is you're going to be asleep for six to nine hours on average for a human. So you're probably not eating while you're sleeping. So you got those hours. Um, if you just stop eating after uh, dinner and drink, you know, drink all the water you want. But if you stop eating after dinner and then you just advance your first meal of the day to hit 12 to 13 hours from when you ended eating dinner, you've got it. Like, and, and I've done this a lot you know, myself and with other people and almost all the side effects any of us ever felt were because we were dehydrated, you know, rumbling stomach or headaches, or it's usually just because you're dehydrated. So that's the bottom line with it. Now, if you're real sensitive blood sugar, you should work with somebody to do that. If you're on insulin, you really need to work with someone, everybody else, pretty much it's pick your end time for dinner and then drink water until 12, 13 hours later. And most people within, even the most sensitive people who have to eat all the time, within two or three weeks, they, they could get there. You know, so that was really the base of the pyramid. Then the next thing was to remove anything and everything you possibly can remove that's processed, has added chemicals. Let's, let's not bring more junk in with the food we're eating. Then the next thing above that kind of goes hand in hand, which is just to cut out simple sugars, you know, junky sugars, et cetera. And then the next thing, which is universal to any, almost any diet, not all of them was to increase high fiber vegetables, et cetera. And then everything above that. So we'd have these two pyramids and the bottom four levels are the same. The top then would be what you're going to do with your diet and eat. And then that, if say your family or your culture or whatever was very Mediterranean-ish diet. We, we would do a modified for cancer Mediterranean diet. We had people who, you know, were strict vegans or were, uh, you know, for various reasons, we work with that. We also had people that said, I want to do keto or I want to do a low carb approach. The same rules apply for the first four levels of cleaning your diet up. The rest then is fine tuning. So I have really, uh, both for the sake of my patients actually being able to do what I want them to do, but also, you know, just looking at outcomes over time with the exception of certain real aggressive cancers. That's the way that we talk about diet is, you know, clean it up, get a little break from eating in every 24 hours. And then the rest is, you know, the rest is a little easier to do. So the food thing is, yeah, it includes all of that, obviously. Um, the other two, like muscle and brain, so muscle kind of tags onto that insulin thing. Your body has this uh, wonderful crosstalk in its metabolism where if you are feeding the insulin system and your insulin's bouncing all over all day, or just there's just too many carbohydrates for, you know, so you got to put out more insulin, take care of it. That's pro inflammatory. And if you do that a long time, and you at all have any propensity to cancer development or metastases, et cetera, it'll, it'll fuel the fire, you know, it may not cause it, but it'll fuel the fire. The more you work your big muscles in your body, it's sort of the anti-insulin chemistry. So 
movements of your body and you don't have to, you know, we get a lot of people and they're just done with chemo or surgery and they feel horrible. You know, you don't have to become a marathoner, you know, it's just, it's let's fix your diet up. So it's not triggering. And then if your biggest exercise for today is getting out of your hospital bed um, or your bed in your house and going to the bathroom, we would have people just do one extra trip towards the bathroom a day, you know, and, and build up from there. If you're ambulatory, you're not in a hospital bed, but your biggest um, exercise is uh, walking, you know, outside your mailbox and back, we'd get people to work up to going around the block, you know, or something. And so you can start to do it from even very, you know, very physically damaged. It's just moving your body. And the real cool thing is you don't have to do anything special. The, the muscles that move you uh, around and hold your body up are the most important to make moves. So walking works really, really well. Now, if you want to do more, you, you can. So if you pair the, the dietary stuff with, say, a, a bit of intermittent fasting, lowering your insulin load, and then you get your body working more, your, those two things are working in a direction that's very metabolically positive for you. So that's really what muscle is about is, you know, and it's not about, you know, going from being a couch potato to running 20 miles a day. It's, that's not going to happen. It's, it's about doing a little more. Yeah. And I didn't know if it was um, lifting weights, you know, really lifting mm -hmm. eight pound weights or 10 pound weights in China. If you add that on, it's even better, but because you're the bigger, the muscle group, the more it contributes your, your legs and your core muscles if you can just get them moving by walking, that's step one. And then if you get to step two, so you're starting to feel better and you're healing and you can just do a little bit of resistive, you know, with the next biggest group, which is your, you know, shoulder and arm muscles, that's an added bonus. Yeah. Yeah. But it's actually, you look at just the size of the muscles in your body, the bigger the muscle, the more it contributes. I mean, some people can't walk and that's a different story and you work with that, but most people can walk at least a little bit. And so it's easy to kind of add that in. And it's also not as daunting. I mean, every everyone has, even if you've not had cancer, you've probably been sick enough to feel like you don't want to do anything, you know, if you really feel sick. Well, if you're coming off chemotherapy or if you're recovering from surgery, usually you don't feel like doing a whole lot and you really shouldn't. So it's just something you can ease into and it, it really pays metabolic dividends, just like shifting your diet. And the last foundational pillar I, I call brain, which is, is really all the parts of, of your mental, emotional makeup. I usually tell patients it's two directional. So there's what you're thinking. So what's your self-talk? What are you worried about? What are you, are you processing through your cancer diagnosis or are you kind of stuck? grieving it and not able to get out of that. So that happens a lot. So that's the internal environment, which is very powerful. But then there's the external, what comes in. So, you know, what, what am I allowing to speak into my mind? So is it a lot of, you know, negative podcasts I listen to or negative news or it's, you know, all death and destruction. And there's some people we interact with in our lives that can be that way we have to be real careful about that. I think for general health, if you're dealing with cancer, you need your, your brain on your side mm. because it's connected through many ways to your body. And, and you have to be very careful what you're feeding it and also what you're allowing it to say, which, which is a whole other thing. So those three things though, if, 
if I look backwards over lots and lots of patients, you know, regardless of what kind of cancer they had or how bad it was or whatever, if you're looking at what we normally look at in the world of integrative and naturopathic oncology, which is the best quality of life and potentially having that extend your life, because we're all going to pass away from something. So if we get good quality of life and maybe a little more of it, that's the first win. It didn't matter what they, the people did therapeutically, pretty much if they had those things going on, the other therapeutics, including standard therapeutics work better. And when I wrote my, last book, which is all about the mind body and that connection, there's actually a fair amount of research now in patient empowerment or medical empowerment, patient empowerment that shows that, you know, real objective things like you need less pain medicine. If you feel more empowered and in charge of what's going on, uh, you uh, generally have better quality of life outcomes. You have, you know, there's a lot of really good things there. And they do it under the, you know, the banner of empowerment research. But the whole idea there is being realistic. And maybe today I can't do anything about the fact I have this kind of cancer, but I have control over a whole bunch of other things. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm not the doctor, so I'm not making decisions about my dose of chemo or my dose of vitamin C or whatever, but I have control over everything else about that and how I allow that in and how I feel about it, et cetera. That is such a big point just because, you know, I think when you're going through cancer, you just, you feel that sense of no control that, that yeah. you know, maybe your body failed you and, and you're going through all that emotional stuff, but, but there are those things you can control. And I think that's so empowering. And, and that being said, it's time for random round. All right. It went so fast. I, I think we're going to have to do another episode because I have so many more questions for you. <laughs> I'd be happy to come back. <laughs> Great. So fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? Uh, freedom to me is being able to uh, be self-determining. So being able to be clear enough on the inside with myself, uh, you know, that I at least have the opportunity to make the right choices, to do the best things for you know, my health and my family and those around me, uh, you know, because there's a lot of, like we said, there's a lot of things we can't control and you, you got a whole bunch more than you would think that you can control. So freedom is the ability to access that and be self-determined and empowered. The last show you binged and loved. Ooh, binged and loved. Um, well, you know, with, uh, with COVID, there's been a lot more opportunity to <laughs> <laughs> to to maybe overwatch certain things um there there's way too many answers to that question but um one I did really enjoy though uh was was the uh, the Beatles uh, special oh i want to see that <laughs> yeah it's it it's like you kind of have to be into the Beatles a little bit to understand it but also it's just interesting to watch the process and you know, one one comment people make, well, it's awfully slow, but it's actually just film of them making up an album, you know, so it's it, it was just really interesting and didn't tax my mind too much. And it was a lot of fun. If you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. That could be so many people, you know, um, 
only because of the topic we've been talking about, because it's the first thing that came up to my mind is Otto Warburg of the famous Warburg effect, who really was quite far ahead of his time in thinking about cancer and things like that, especially being that it was 100 plus years ago. I would really like to talk to him and uh, and just see, you know, where did these ideas come from and, you know, kind of compare and contrast them to what we know now. Because think about it, they did all of that work with pretty non-modern human biology and all, all, all the stuff that we know now. So I, I think he'd be cool. There's a lot of people, though. <laughs> what is your favorite go-to snack? That actually depends. That depends a lot on uh, what I'm doing. I like, this may sound strange, I like celery as a vehicle uh, for other things. I've, I've always loved celery for some reason. Uh, and so I, I, I do a lot of celery plus whatever. And then uh, I really, like, let's say I'm not trying to sound too healthy. I like seafood things quite a lot. Now, the more you learn about seafood, you have to be very careful because it's a great vector for a lot of chemistry you don't need, but, uh, but I do like seafood. <laughs> what is one simple thing that brings you joy? Well, you just saw one accidentally. They, they're not supposed to come in here, but the grandchildren <laughs> visit and uh, that's Francisco. He's, he's the sweetest little guy, but uh, we have, we have seven grandchildren, five kids and, uh, Right now, the grandkids maybe bring me more joy than the kids, but I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> What's on your nightstand? Uh, there's probably a little too many things there right now, but there's a, I'm trying to get a visual image of the nightstand too, boy. Uh, so beyond the normal things like your alarm clock and glasses and things, I've got a F. Scott Fitzgerald book and I don't get a lot of free time, but when I do, I try and read something that's totally not about my job. And so that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> what is your favorite form of exercise? Long ago, I, I was an athlete and I, I really liked almost everything that I did in sort of reacquainting myself with getting in better shape and all that, especially like through the pandemic. I did a lot of hiking and a lot of uh, then worked at like a lot of weighted pack hiking and that was actually really good because I could kind of be out in nature, even when they locked everything down and you know, no one was anywhere, you could go out and do stuff. Um, so it's still probably my favorite thing to do. Um, but I, I, I do like, uh, I do like lifting weights. I've always lifted weights. And now that we can be back around gyms and stuff, I, I do a little more of that, but, but really hiking is probably my favorite. What is one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? It was so many things, but uh, my health, because my life is pretty much hearing about bad health and um, any positive amount of health I have is, is, is such a blessing. And just last, how can people find you and learn more? So there is a, I call it my hub website because I do a lot of different things. And I kept it simple. It's just D-R-A-N-O-W, DrAnow.com. And depending on who the person is, uh, there are links there for like my YouTube and other media and my books. Also, there, if you're a healthcare provider, there's a link to my healthcare uh, website where we do specific stuff around these things. So D-R-A-N-O-W, DrAnow.com. And uh, everything should be linked there. 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And I know so many people are going to get so much value from this. So thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.